Welcome back to the third episode of Long-Term Memory Radio's documentary series, Anarchism, Freedom on the Air. Last week, we surveyed five important events in the history of anarchism. Today, we will explore how people are applying anarchist theory in their lives and in their communities to address today's social problems. The Fédération Anarchiste is an alliance which draws autonomous anarchist collectives from throughout France in militant engagement against authority structures and social inequality. We spoke with Sylvain from Paris who works with the collective. Could you tell me something about the collective you are a part of? Okay, we are uh, an, an organization of French-speaking uh, people, so we are uh, organized. Uh, we have uh, a bookshop, a radio, uh, a newspaper, which is edited uh, every week, uh, and we have um, many uh, uh, rooms okay, in uh, different towns. And uh, we are pretty active. <laughs> how, how many uh, members are in the collective? If you are interested, uh, just of the core uh, people, uh, it may be uh, 500. And uh, if you speak uh, with uh, all uh, people who are interested uh, in our actions, uh, it may concern uh, 1,000 or 5,000 people. What are some of the contemporary concerns of the anarchist movement in France? As anarchists, we are involved uh, in the emancipation of uh, individuals or collectives. So we are uh, invested in uh, all, uh, all fronts, women, social struggle, uh, etc. So it's very different. But basically, we have uh, some... Uh, some points of activity uh, now. We have the uh, European Union and we are invested in uh, struggles against front frontiers uh, with other comrades uh, of all Europe. We are invested in uh, social fronts against our government uh, because in France uh, we, we have uh, a social security. So. Uh, it's, it's not expensive to have care in Europe, in France, but there's a big pressure from capitalists to get all uh, uh, care industry as a pharmacy, uh, private clinics, so uh, all, all the care system, all the uh, struggles against poverty. Uh, there's a big pressure uh, on uh, unemployees, so we are active on all these fronts uh, in the same time. <laughs> they said uh, with the European Union uh, it will be uh, safer and more easy to live, 
But in fact, uh, we, we can say that uh, they lie to people. So we are invested in, uh, for example, uh, uh, there was a uh, an international strike at uh, Renault Automotive. Uh, there was a strike with uh, Belgian people and uh, French people. Uh, there was also a strike against an uh, international uh, summit as uh, G7 and uh, NATO, the NATO. So uh, anarchists were very involved uh, in these uh, struggles. At Genoa, uh, there was uh, one million people uh, in the street. So uh, we had some uh, odd points. <laughs> what is the anarchist critique on immigration policy of France? Uh, we have a big uh, tradition of immigration from Africa. Uh, because there were some French colonies before, uh, Algeria, Morocco, uh, Tunisia. So there is a big community uh, in France. The racist ones say that uh, the immigrants are responsible for uh, the unemployed. They say they, they steal our works, uh, etc. And uh, the policy of the uh, European uh, Union is uh, very clear. Uh, it's to uh, group European states and block all the frontiers. But they want to make some uh, agreements uh, to work with uh, those people, but paid uh, three times less. <laughs> we are forced to... Uh, to make sure, for example, uh, with uh, expulsions. Okay. You have the same problem in Montreal with uh, Algerian people, uh, I may <laughs> read. Uh, so it's very similar in France. But in addition to that, there is a tradition of uh, racism uh, in France, which is very uh, difficult uh, to fight. As, as far as your collective, the Fédération Anarchiste, is concerned, would you say that there's a variety of people from different walks of life, workers, students, older and young, or does there tend to be a, a, a pattern with those involved? Oh, uh, we have every kind of people. So young, old, students, workers. We are 500, so we have a kind of diversity because uh, each group is, uh, have a, a relative uh, autonomy in its construction. So we have very different people. Ramsey Kanan is a member of the California branch of AK Press, an anarchist worker-owned collective. The California branch has been in existence since 1994. Its goal is to make available radical books that would not normally be provided by corporate publishers. Ramsey is one of eight members who make all decisions collectively. Today, he is here to speak about his experience as a member of AK Press. AK Press, an anarchist collective, our mandate, as we see it, is to publish and distribute uh, anarchist and anti-authoritarian propaganda, uh, largely 
in the printed form, books, zines, pamphlets, magazines, and some also uh, hopefully educational and informative ephemera, carrying a wide variety of CDs, videos, DVDs, uh, stylish apparel. And what does it mean to be an anarchist collective? I guess it means two things. One is that, that we share individually and collectively a particular set of politics. That's why we're an anarchist collective as opposed to communist collective or a fascist collective. So that the folks involved with an AK share a common set of anarchist ideals. Also to be an anarchist collective means that we organize our workplace in what we perceive to be an anarchist fashion. As I say, the ways that we organize the workplace and the ways that we take decisions within that workplace, um, our pay scale, the fact that we exist without owners or managers or bosses. So I guess that's putting our anarchist ideals and our anarchist theories into practice, into our the daily lives of how we organize our work. I guess those principles are, I don't know, two or threefold. Firstly is that the people that work within AK, I guess one of the main tenets as far as we're concerned about anarchism is that people control their own lives, whether that is economic, social, community, leisure activities, sports, child-bearing, child-rearing, whatever that may be, that the people directly involved in whatever those activities might be should be the ones that actually take a meaningful part in controlling and making those decisions. How we practice that in our workplace is likewise that those that work at AK Press are the ones that take those meaningful decisions. Secondly, that those that work within AK Press, uh, so there are currently eight of us, that we all have equal decision-making power within the company, so we don't have a boss or a decision-making hierarchy. And thirdly, that um, while the folks that work within AK Press have different job descriptions, we do have a bookkeeper, we do have someone that does sales and marketing, we do have someone that does shipping and receiving, that whatever those job descriptions, that that work that we do is equally valued and is equally valued because it's all part of the same whole that the person fixing the computers still wouldn't have a job if someone didn't actually ship out the book and to that end that is formalized in the sense that we are all paid the same so the person that fixes the computers has no more or no less power or authority in the company than the person that counts the books and puts them on the shelf what sorts of challenges does this sort of organizing structure pose it has a bunch of challenges. One, probably the greatest one, is the challenge on one's own patience. The reality of that means that we sit in a lot of meetings. If we are actually going to organise our own lives, that means a lot of talking, a lot of bickering and fighting too, a lot of discussing, a lot of disagreements, a lot of trying to come to compromise, to conclusions. It also means being prepared and able to perhaps do things that might not be the fastest, certainly perhaps not the most profitable way of doing things. But regardless whether it's actually a better or more or less efficient way of actually you know, selling books in terms of what we do, it does take a lot of time. That's definitely a disadvantage. It's no fun being in meetings, even if uh, those meetings are perhaps interesting when you're talking about vital aspects of your own business and hence your own livelihood. It's still not a particularly fun way to spend your time. You know, it would be easier in some senses to have someone tell you what to do rather than hash it out with your workmates for hours and hours over potentially controversial or, or emotive issues. Uh, that's a drawback. I think that's probably the only one, actually. There are so many more advantages of being your own boss. Uh, the only other disadvantage of what we do, in terms of AK in particular, is that we have no other form, we have no parent company, we have no form of subsidy, we don't get grants, we don't get, perhaps surprisingly, we don't get any money from the government, we don't get arts council money, whatever. So we are circumscribed 
and that our only source of income is by selling. And as yet, unfortunately, there's not necessarily a massive demand for the kind of revolutionary uh, literature that we uh, would like to force upon the world. And so that definitely circumscribes the massive amount of money that we can make, which is a minor bummer. But for the folks of us that work there, the advantages of being a self-managed, self-controlled workplace, I guess, outweigh those uh, perhaps time and uh, financial disadvantages. It doesn't have a beat, but you can dance to it. It doesn't have a beat, but you can dance to it. It doesn't have a beat, but you can dance to it. It doesn't have a beat, but you can dance to it. Anarchy. Yes. But you can dance to it. It doesn't have a beat. Anarchy. But you can dance to it. It doesn't have a beat. But you can dance to it. It Energy and How does anarchism relate to sexuality and sexual orientation? We'll hear next from Jamie Heckert. Jamie is an anarchist who lives and writes in Edinburgh, Scotland. Of his many theories, he believes that the workplace is like bad sex, and good sex is like anarchy. Well, I'm, I'm currently finishing up my PhD in sociology, uh, which is an anarchist critique of the notion of sexual orientation, um, which is a fancy way of saying, I think, Sexual orientation is a bit like government uh, in that it involves borders. So there's these rules around these boxes of are you gay or bi or straight? And those borders are policed. Um, people are abused or hassled or teased um, or, or made afraid of stepping outside of those boxes um, or crossing those borders. Um, so I'm saying that, that sexual orientation is, is a bit of a bad habit in that sense. Also that... Um, the government doesn't really have quite as much power as we imagine it does. Um, that the things like sexual orientation are, are one way in which government power is devolved um, because we all police ourselves and each other. And, and as much as we do that, um, that allows government to exist and to claim, to claim power over us, um, which it really doesn't have. There aren't enough police in the world to control us all. We do so much of that controlling for them. Um, so resisting sexual orientation, resisting being put in these boxes um, in terms of our desires, our attractions, our emotions, our relationships uh, is, a good way of is one way of resisting government. An anarchist critique of, let's say, physical borders might, for example, lead to efforts focused on, on bringing down uh, nation borders through uh, immigration campaigns. How could anarchists react to the kind of sexual borders you're talking about? Um, I, think, I think you're right that, that anarchism does focus a lot on, on the kind of public sphere, in a way, on, on nations and, and capitalism and governments. Um, and it's, it's really thinking, thinking to the, the basic feminist thing, the personal is political, um, recognizing how, um, how our interpersonal relationships 
are aren't apolitical. I mean, we don't think of them necessarily as political projects in the same way as we would like a border camp. Um, but really, um, finding ways to question the idea that we should fit our relationships into particular kinds of boxes, um, discussions, exchanging information, um, really questioning and thinking um, about our relationships, about our emotions, about gender norms, and, and about why why we put ourselves into particular boxes. Um, and, I, and I want to be clear um, that I'm not saying that everyone should try to become bisexual or pansexual or, or open to everything. That's that's not the point. Um, but more that, that people shouldn't be afraid uh, of what may or may not happen to them. Um, that if, if someone's desires do change, that shouldn't cause a panic attack uh, and an identity crisis in the way that it so often does. Um, but I think discussion and communication and openness and, and thinking about emotions and relationships much more than we do is, is crucial to bringing down those borders. You mentioned before that, that our sexual orientations are policed. Maybe you could elaborate on that and how exactly they are policed in Western societies. Well, I think, I think rather than saying our sexual orientations are policed, I would say we are sexually oriented through policing. So it's not as though I don't, I don't believe the argument that we're born gay or straight or bi, but, but our, our desires, our relationships, how we express our gender, um, are all constantly pressured to, to conform to certain norms and to fit into certain boxes. And, though, and sexual orientation is kind of the effect of, the, of that policing. And that these boxes appear to be real. We think of ourselves as being something or other. Um, which, which we're not really, we just imagine that we are because we've been policed in this way. Um, and, and the kinds of policing can be really overt sorts of things like queer bashing, um, which also happens to people who identify as heterosexual, depending on the context, um, or um, jokes, teasing, homophobic language, um, just the, the general kind of nervousness that people have. Um, people's own shame and fear is a big problem. That's something that really needs to be addressed to overcome these borders. Um, people are ashamed of, of their feelings. You, you kind of, uh, you also brought up the analogy that sexual orientation is uh, a lot like government, but then you also mentioned that uh, good sex is a lot like anarchy. Maybe you could elaborate on that point. Yeah, I mean, if, if, we, think, if we think about um, the characteristics of a good sexual relationship or experience, um, we, we'd normally think of things like, well, active consent in particular, not just going along with it because we feel like we have to, but really wanting to be there. Um, mutual pleasure, respect, communication, honesty, trust, patience, um, comfort are, are all really important for, uh, for a good sexual experience, um, whether or not that's uh, of a short-term thing or a long-term thing or, or what kind of sex or who's involved. Um, we might all agree that those those things are kind of important, um, and if if we think that those things are basically what the basis for good relationships in general, um, think of sex as being a kind of relationship rather than a special thing that's outside of society, um, then we can recognize that, that so few of our relationships are like that. That any time we have to deal with authorities, it's not a consensual, it's not actively consensual experience. We, we kind of consent, we go along with it, but it's not because that's what we really want to do. It's because we feel like we have to because they claim authority over us or they have a gun or, or they can keep us out of the country or they, they have power, they claim power. 
and, and the same with our economic relationships. The workplace is a non-consensual environment. And so, so one way that I've found very effective to get people to think about anarchism is to, get peop- is to question why aren't all of our relationships like good sex as much as possible? Um, why aren't we organizing ourselves in terms of active consent and mutual pleasure and, and, and fun? Um, why is sexing is a special thing that's outside of, of normal life? And so in that sense, good sex is anarchy, and anarchism is saying that all of life should be like good sex. How would you say that good sex might provide an inspiration for anarchism? If, if we think about our experiences, or and, and unfortunately a lot of people haven't had experiences of good sex, but if we think about those ideals, um, that, that those, are, those are times where we're actually able to connect to another person in a good way. And we could also use good friendship. Um, is, is a very similar sort of thing where we're able to feel connected to other people in a very comfortable, relaxed, enjoyable, patient kind of way. Um, this this is what the basis of getting along is. And if we think, I think relationships are both the basis of who we are as individuals. I, I am only who I am because of all the relationships I've had over the course of my life. And society is also made up of relationships. It's not made up of corporations and individuals and, and governments and, and, and abstract things like that, but it's made up of, of lots of ongoing relationships. So government exists because there are lots and lots of relationships of domination that allow it to exist. Um, if those relationships of domination were broken down at an everyday level, then a, then a government couldn't exist. Um, so all those people involved in that what seems to be a solid institution all continue to relate to each other in certain ways. Um, so if, if we took sex as an inspiration, if the relationships of people who are currently in those sorts of institutions changed and people refused to be dominated, um, refused, because I mean, effectively we can think of, of government or, or corporate relationships as being a bit like rape, um, where, where people aren't given a choice, where they're told either you do this or you'll be sacked, either you do this or we'll put you in prison. If that were sex, we wouldn't stand for it. But we're told that that that's the way it has to be when, when we're talking about the public sphere, as though that were somehow different. Uh, and I think, I think sex provides a, an inspiring alternative for what life could be like. She had dreads upon her head Ophelia, you are so well read, so lead me spellbound, unadorned and unrefined. I am dumbfounded by the caves of your mind. We are earthbound, surrounded by the streams we lie in. I am your bloodhound, identified by my love for your life. I am your bloodhound, identified by my love for your life. Regina Cochran's real-life education has brought her to many places. 
Having left the physical sciences to study feminist theory, she has become well-known as a teacher around the globe. Politicized by her involvement in third world solidarity, environmental peace and women's movements, she mutated from an apolitical science student into a political one. Her activism in the field of international development brought her to such cities as Dajing and Ghana. In 1998, she defended a PhD entitled Feminism, Ecology and Negative Dialects toward a feminist Green Party. She is currently teaching the feminist theory courses at University of Calgary. Regina will speak to us about anarcho-feminism and the ways in which feminist ideals have influenced anarchist movements for social change. What is anarcho-feminism? Historically, because anarchism has been focused on a critique of hierarchy in society, and more specifically of uh, the state, capitalism, and the church, a lot of the themes in anarchism have had a, a strong resonance for women. Because of this, a lot of women have been very active in anarchist politics, and they've experienced some contradictions in this activism anarchist men who've been talking about hierarchy have been in their own personal relationships very hierarchical toward women. A lot of women within anarchist circles had to look at the domination of women, which isn't addressed specifically by anarchism, but is another form of hierarchy. Are there writers or thinkers or groups that have particularly been involved in bringing feminism to anarchism? Uh, well, I think there have always been women who've been very active in anarchism. For example, Louise Michel in the Paris Commune. But the person that most people think of is Emma Goldman, who was a Russian-American activist, mostly in the early part of the 20th century. A lot of her writings focused on anarchist themes, but also addressed problems specifically relating to women problems connected with sexuality, uh, birth control, a critique of marriage, a critique of uh, Puritan morality, and the church's role in enforcing this. And today, in feminist circles, there are some individuals who, who are quite prominent in feminist theory who also come from an anarchist background. The American political theorist Kathy Ferguson, also uh, Martha Acklesberg, Catherine Pine Adelson, who's an anarchist feminist philosopher. And because radical feminism itself came out of the new left in the 60s, and there was a strong influence of anarchism in the new left, anarchism and anarcho-feminism has had a big influence on radical feminism, too. Can you explain just a little bit what exactly the difference is between radical feminism and anarcho-feminism? Radical feminism basically started in second wave feminist movement in the late 60s when groups of uh, women involved in the new left broke away from the new left because of the sexism they experienced in the anti-Vietnam War movement and civil rights movement, and they formed autonomous women's groups. And some of the main themes of radical feminism were critique of hierarchy, consistency of means and ends, 
connecting the political and the personal. Uh, and a lot of these really resonated strongly with anarchism. But the radical feminists really weren't specifically anarchists. And radical feminism itself as a movement didn't last very long. It rose in the late 60s and really died out by the mid-70s and was replaced by what is now still called often uh, radical feminism, but is more accurately called cultural feminism. And cultural feminism actually is a form of liberalism, big emphasis on maternal feminism. So these days, radical feminism, or, or what goes as radical feminism, really doesn't have very much to do with anarcho-feminism. There was a connection for a short time, but they didn't specifically take aim as much at a critique of the state, for example, as uh, anarcho-feminists would. Hmm? Would you be able to say a little bit more about the way that anarcho-feminism influenced both the anarchist movement and other movements for social change? Anarcho-feminism in the last decade or so has had the biggest influence probably in the environmental movement in the form of ecofeminism. And actually, um, one of the foremothers of ecofeminism in North America, Inestra King, uh, was associated with the Institute for Social Ecology in Vermont. Also, from the other end of the anarchist spectrum, Judy Barry, who was a union activist in Northern California, formed a local of uh, uh, timber workers, IWW local, with uh, Earth First in Northern California. She was interested in ecofeminism more from an anarcho-syndicalist point of view. In general, you can divide anarchists into individualist anarchists and social anarchists. Social anarchists are socialists of a sort, and most anarcho-feminists have tended to be social anarchists, to be leftist anarchists. But today, too, and uh, we can see the spectrum in ecofeminism. for example, the whole emphasis on um, spirituality, neo-paganism, is very characteristically individualist anarchist. The whole focus is on changing values and mindsets Social anarchists tend to be very leery, not only of institutionalized religion, but also of neo-paganism and the idea that we just have to change our spiritual outlook. Their emphasis is much more on changing institutions. I'd like to go back to what you were saying just a minute ago about the anti-globalization mm -hmm. movement. In what ways has the combination of feminism with anarchism influenced organizing around anti-globalization? The anti-globalization movement is very diverse. There are many, many different political strands involved. But when we look particularly at the street protests, there have been a lot of affinity groups participating who identify specifically as anarchists grassroots uh, anarchist affinity groups and some women who identify very strongly as feminists participating in these groups. So I think in the future we may see kind of a resurgence of anarcho-feminism coming out of some of this anti-globalization activism. Some of these mostly young women, some of them have been involved in these mixed affinity groups and are now beginning to experience, as women did in the New Left in the 60s, some contradictions around 
activism that critiques hierarchy, but on the personal level, they're experiencing a lot of sexism within some of these mixed groups. So it's still early days yet for the anti-globalization movement, but I think we can see some trends and some things happening that indicate that this may be kind of a catalyst for a resurgence of anarcho-feminism. not-for-profit, an activist, member of an art collective, and the lead singer for Reconstruction, a punk band infused with Puerto Rican rhythms. We asked him how he translates anarchist theory into practice. Which principles of anarchism have been the most influential in your daily life? Probably the most important principle was just trying to live outside of the system with the idea of ultimately destroying it before it destroys us. I guess for us, um, anarchism is more of a, a straight-up lifestyle because we, we live it every day because we know if we don't fight Babylon, then we're, we're consumed by it. So we don't look at it as, you know, something abstract where we're outside of it and we're fighting, you know, to save society. We're really fighting to save ourselves and ultimately we'll save society if we save ourselves. From the onset, was music and the stage a natural form for your activism or did it evolve over time? I guess it evolved over time and we started out sort of as a, as a collective because the communities we were from were being gentrified and we, we didn't really know what we could do and most of us were actually graffiti writers so we just kind of started out, you know, right, instead of tagging up, which is what we would normally do, we started writing political slogans and anti-gentrification slogans and we, we did that for a while and we were trying to figure out, you know, what else we could do and we were trying to figure out what other talents people had. Some people started doing actually political education classes because they had a knack for that. Some people started just, you know, throwing stones through, you know, the windows of, of corporate chain stores because they had a knack for that and because that was artistic also. And some of us found, you know, that we could actually play instruments. Some of us tried to do, you know, film. And so we, we basically became this art, artist collective that wasn't so much about the music as much as it was about using art as a weapon, as, as Fela would say. We could reach certain people with our music in terms of talking about the situation in Vieques or talking about other aspects of struggle through the music where we may not have been able to reach them through other means. Graffiti only does, does so much and a lot of people you know, look at it as an you know, illegal activity, which it is an illegal activity, but it's not necessarily bad, you know? but a lot of people look at it that way. And a lot of people look at you know, throwing a rock through the window of a store as being you know, bad somehow, but you know, nobody seems to look at music as being bad, so we started using music as a way of reaching people with the same message that we were trying to reach them with by throwing a stone through a window. Throughout your years of involvement in different anarchist collectives, have you seen increasing diversity in the composition in terms of gender and ethnicity? I'd say not, not sufficiently. I think it's only recently that folks have started calling themselves you know, APOC, anarchist people of color. And the reason for that is I think most people of color who have been involved in, have been involved in anarchist movements tend to be, you know, as Fishbone would say, the, you know, the fly in the buttermilk. People of color surrounded by, by white folks. 
it's for that reason that, that a lot of people of color have decided, okay, well, we've got to form our own collective of people of color. I mean, the problem has always been that, talking about the United States, a lot of white anarchists are out to save the country and save the world, whereas for us, it's really like, okay, well, these things that we're, that we're fighting against, whether it be the WTO or, you know, FTA, whatever, are things that we're affected by every day. And so for us, it's always like, okay, well, we're, as anarchists and people of color, we're looking at it from an anarchist point of view, but most people of color are simply looking at it from the point of view of, of surviving and trying to survive America. America, and we're trying to survive this planet. We're not trying to save it. We'll save it later once we figure out how to, how to survive it. There aren't enough people of color involved in most of the anarchist groups that I've ever you know, been involved in, which is why we started doing our own thing. For the longest time, you know, a lot of people of color you talk to don't call themselves anarchists. You know, they don't identify as anarchists, but, at, but yet they've been living as anarchists you know, all their lives. When I was a kid, my, my father was a Puerto Rican nationalist, and the Puerto Rican nationalists lived in, in El Barrio, which is East Harlem, and they basically created their own autonomous communities because they didn't want to, you know, legitimize the authority over them by the police or by the government. So they would create their own autonomous communities. They would feed each other. They would clothe each other. You know, they would deal with their own problems and they wouldn't get the police involved. You know, they'd basically say, fuck authority. But they didn't consider themselves anarchists. They considered themselves Puerto Rican nationalists. And it was only as an adult that I started acknowledging the use of the word anarchist. And that was mainly because it became an easier way to talk to other people of color who weren't anarchists about what we were doing. You know, it was easier to say, well, okay, we, you know, we, we, we're anti-authority and that's what anarchists are. Oh, you know, we try to feed each other and we try to, you know, make our own food or, or, or steal our own food and that's what anarchists do. Do you find there are many Puerto Rican youths that are open to anti-authoritarian politics or anarchist politics? I think a lot of Puerto Rican youth are, are very much open to anti-authoritarian politics. There's always the problem with the word anarchism because it's perceived as something created by dead white men who wrote books. And then it's looked at now as something that's predominantly white middle-class kids. And there's always been this, you know, this fear because a lot of times when we get involved in demonstrations, the first ones who, who, are, who are snatched up by the police and go to prison are the, are, the, are the black and brown youth. So there's always been this fear that, oh, anarchism, that's a white thing, that's a white thing. So it's, for us, it's always been a question of, of breaking it down as to what it is we're trying to do, and then afterwards explaining, okay, well, this is actually anarchism. You know, it's not owned by any particular, you know, so-called racial group or so-called ethnic group. It's easier to move a, a middle-class white kid into anarchist politics than it is a street kid who's trying to figure out how he's going to eat the next day and how he's going to survive the next day. Have you ever come into contact with people who felt it was an inherent contradiction that you were so passionate and adamant about Puerto Rico's national liberation as anarchists? Yeah, I mean, definitely. It's generally from white anarchists, we get the question of, oh, how can you be a nationalist and be an anarchist? But our understanding in terms of Puerto Rican nationalism is simply that we're trying to survive and we're trying to stay alive. You know, there was a Puerto Rican nationalist, Pedro Campos, who said that the U.S. wants the birdcage without the bird. In other words, they'd be quite happy to take Puerto Rico and kill off all the Puerto Ricans. So we don't have the luxury to say nationalism is bad when it's a question of our, of our very existence. We've already been killed off once. We were originally indigenous people called Tainos. And now if you go to the museum, you're told that Tainos are extinct. So technically, we are a people that are extinct. 
and now we're trying to just survive. Puerto Rico being the oldest colony on the planet, if you are a so-called anarchist or a revolutionary, and you're trying, you know, to destroy the system of, of imperialism and colonialism and enslavement, then you have an obligation to try to free Puerto Rico. Puerto Ricans are, are the same as other indigenous people in the Americas who, who were destroyed. You know, their nations were destroyed. Our nation is holding on by a thread. But we're not, we're not even the same people we were 500 years ago because our, the first people we were were, were annihilated. Ask for work. If they do not give you work, ask for bread. If they do not give you work or bread, then take the bread. Emma Goldman. Direct action. I was asked today, um, by a, a person in the media. They were talking about uh, Queen's Park last year. They were talking about June 15th. They were talking about um, all the folks who came there that day and stood up and defended and physically defended themselves in the face of what came down on them. He didn't quite put it like that. What he said to me was, do you regret the violence? And what I say, is that when I think of that man who got dragged 30 feet this morning in a cardboard box, and when I think of the brother, the dear friend of OCAP, who we buried last week, who lived on the streets, and when I think of the, 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 the northern native community of Pekanjikum, where three young women have recently taken their lives, and where the suicide rate is 36 times the national average, then the only thing that I regret is that we haven't yet stopped this government! Many anarchists believe in direct action, a basic principle of anarchism and a tactic to overthrow the state. But what exactly is direct action? What does it mean? What are its aims, and what are its capabilities? Anybody can accept that a 40-year-old man is living and sleeping in a, in a in a box. Because if that was my mother, or my father, or my brother, or my sister, or my friend, I don't give a fuck what you say about violence. I would stop that now, and I would do what it would take. And if you get in my way. To make sure that that man gets housing, or that he gets enough to eat, I will move you!
direct action is one way that anarchism puts its radical ideals of justice into practice now. We will now hear excerpts from a speech by Anne Hansen. Anne wrote the book Direct Action and spent seven years in jail because of her involvement in the revolutionary guerrilla group, the Squamish Five. Here, she will speak to the potential of direct action, its successes, and its relation to violence. So I think that there's a difference between terrorism and generally what is acknowledged as direct action. Direct action has uh, evolved out of a tradition, I believe, of anarchism, which, again, I'm talking here more about the sort of more militant forms of direct action, and I hope I've made it clear that I think that, you know, the whole diversity of tactics or the whole diversity of choices of what people do should be considered equal and respected. But I think because of my past, I am focusing a little bit more on the more controversial aspects. Um, so, you know, I'm not trying to say that the only way to go is militant direct action, but that's probably, that is where I'm focusing because of my history, and I'm sure that's what, you know, people are associating me with more so than the music sector or the art sector. I think that direct action in its more militant forms when being focused on property destruction is a more effective way of going about it. It deters investors, slows down the growth of projects, threatens the assets of multinational corporations. I don't see property destruction as being an act of violence. I don't think that property as such deserves the sort of, the, the sort of respect um, and the rights that it's getting today. I think that people should be getting those rights and respects and the environment and all the other forms of life that exist on this planet. There's such a distorted view of violence in the mass media that I think too many people even in the movement are indoctrinated with it. For example, when um, anti-globalization protesters, let's say, smash a window in a Nike store, I don't think that 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 window in and of itself or the smashing of it is an act of violence and it's certainly in relation to the policies of Nike which is to subcontract out their sneaker manufacturing to private contractors in the third world where they're employing people at below living wages um, you know these sweatshops are surrounded with barbed wire so that union organizers can't get in and it, they know that in those countries the reason that they can pay such low wages is because there's no environmental or health laws instituted to protect the workers. To me that is the real violence, not the breaking of a window. What we chose to do, in retrospect, um, had its successes and I'll go over that shortly. It had its limitations as well. We based our model on the Western European guerrilla groups that were active in the 70s, and they in turn had based their models on the sort of Marxist-Leninist Palestinian groups and also on South, the whole idea of the South American urban guerrilla organization. In retrospect, I think 
that people here in North America, we have to be creative thinkers because the difference between us and even people in Europe, let's say, and people in South America and in the Arab world is that we do not have a, a large majority of the population who necessarily identify with us. That could change, but at, at this point in time, I think if you went into suburbia, very few people would describe themselves as revolutionaries. And so I think that there are other um, models that may be more effective that are in existence today. Well, I mean, even the, I think the black bloc often calls themselves the anti-capitalist convergence, but that type of technique where you have little affinity groups uh, that, ha that adhere to certain principles that can act, but then go back into the mainstream again, into, into their communities and work, is probably, uh, and also the uh, ELF in the States, are probably more effective models at this point in time. They're not. episode of Anarchism, Freedom on the Air. We hope it has been an agreeable experience. <laughs> Please tune in next week as we continue our exploration of anarchism. This has been a production of CKUT's Community News Collective, anarchistically rocking your world since three years ago. Yo, yo.